You know, one of the main places where I see a sort of ambivalence play out and where that dilemma of creating and destroying and whether whether your act of creating something or changing something is somehow offsetting a natural balance. You know, I talked about that a few episodes ago on a more personal level uh, with regards to just being a creative person or being a person who wants to express yourself. Uh, But I think the same applies to scientific advancement, too, where one of my biggest dilemmas and criticisms with you know, the scientific, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to, to put it, because I've never had any criticism of the scientific process, and I think the scientific process is incredible, uh, and reading about how it's been honed over the years and, you know, evolved is really incredible and impressive. Uh, but I think my issue with science as a, uh, as a great human interest and specifically the way that, you know, science has, you know, attached itself to the way we live today. Uh, and, and I mean, created the way we live today in so many ways is that there's this inherent contradiction or hypocrisy. And there's this, what I would consider a myth that science is wholly creative, wholly good that it is simply benefiting us. And I I think a a great example of that is what is playing out now with climate change, which terrifies me. You know, I, I, every time I hear about something, it just seems like, wow, it's like, as much as I think I have a decent head on my shoulders, as much as I see good in the world and people, it's like, that's something that's just truly hanging over our heads. And I don't know exactly what to think of it. I don't necessarily... I don't necessarily believe human beings are solely responsible for a phenomena that large. And in that, there might be some level of peace. If if I can accept that maybe we don't have control over it or we have less control than we believe, it's almost easier to accept that it just it's some sort of cosmic process that is unfolding. And if we get burnt to a crisp as part of a cosmic process, how could I possibly complain? Um, but the strange thing about it is there's this attitude where it's like, we need to listen to the scientists. Have you listened to the scientists? They're going to be the ones who save us. There's this kind of scientific savior myth being promoted. And I'm like, well, if humans are responsible for climate change, if humans are responsible for what could be, you know, planetary devastation on a level we can't even understand right now, I guess we can understand it because that's why we're scared. Uh, we have an idea, uh, but if human beings are responsible, and you know, why would we look to the scientists to save us? Because uh, I feel like science is what got us here. The scientific process, no, the scientific process and inquiry and experiments, uh, you know, the experimental nature of science is just you know what we all do as human beings from birth. You know, we're going to experiment and try things and, you know, try to modify our world and all of that. You know, from the time we're born, we all do that in small ways. Uh, But what I do see with science is this idea that, like, we're not to blame for the way that people use technology. We're not to blame for the way that we use scientific advancements. You know, we're just in this for uh, sheer knowledge. And that might be true. I'm not trying to undermine any scientists past or present i'm not trying to undermine their um motivations or you know try to assign some you know nefarious 
you know, plot to like, you know, it's not like I, I'm not one of these people who's like scientists are doing Satan's work. You know, it's like that's not my attitude at all. And so much good, so much stuff that we as humans recognize as good has come from it. You know, longer lifespans. You know, this technology that has aided our ability to cope with and survive on this earth. But you see where that same technology is used and and contributes to all of this stuff that we are talking about. You know, you think about cars. It's like, who created those? You know, people are blaming these people. It's like, oh, these these dumb, you know, fucking people who, who don't know anything and don't believe in science driving their cars. You know, they're ruining the earth, eating their steaks and driving their cars, and, and they're just fucking dumb, you know? And it's like, well, if they're so dumb, how did they get cars? They didn't make them. You know, it came from other people. And, you know, I think the the easiest example of this is, you know, bombs, atomic energy, where it's like scientists discovered atomic energy and that it could be harnessed in certain ways. And, of course, they washed their hands of it. It's like, I didn't mean for it to be used in a by world governments in a giant bomb that can devastate an entire city and potentially, you know, our entire world. I didn't mean for it to be used that way. And, of course, you didn't. And that's exactly the trouble. That's, with, that's where the heart of the dilemma between creativity and destruction is and not knowing if creativity is actually a form of destruction or is offsetting some natural balance. Because so much of science is the story of evading nature or one-upping nature or escaping, you know, the fate that nature has laid out before us. Uh, And I'm not one of these people who thinks nature is everything either. I love the natural world. I love animals. But I'm not someone who puts it on a pedestal and is like, nature's perfect. Nature's just perfect. You know, I'm not going to say that either. Uh, And... Uh, with with the whole, you know, bomb thing, I get it. It's like, you know, yeah, we probably shouldn't, you know, lock Einstein up because some government, you know, developed a bomb that, you know, used his theory or, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't know enough to comment on exactly how that was used. But there is this thing where, you know, scientists will discover something and then it's like, I, I was totally shocked that this government who funds me used it for a giant bomb that they used on another group of people. I had no idea they were going to do that. You know, it's like, that's what they do. That's what the governments do. And, you know, uh, well, I, I, I was just, you know, I, I just love science. I love discovery. It's like, well, you know what they do with your technology. And in the same way that, you know, scientific advancement was used to create cars, which could be having this devastating impact. You know, it has had an impact, obviously. A lot of people have just died in cars. You know, a lot of people have been in car accidents, that kind of thing. So there's this idea of like, well, well, we'll come up with all this stuff, but if people use it for bad, you know, it's it's not our fault at all. And then you'll have to come back to us and ask us to save you or tell you what's happening. And that's just the weird dilemma of it all, where it's like, you know, none of this actually would be happening. Assuming that what's going on with the climate is uh, a direct result of human behavior, uh, you know, the only people to blame really are you know, governments, scientists, you know, the scientists and whoever's funded them. And the idea of looking to them for insight or help, you know, I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't. Obviously, the people who, you know, who carve this path out are potentially the ones we're going to have to look to to find our way back. But I don't know that that's possible. And I do think we have to rewire our brains when it comes to, you know, how, you know, how much we value 
scientific development, scientific advancement, technological development. And it's not just that, it's also medicine, you know, because that's the clearest, you know, thing. That's like, that's the hardest one for me on a philosophical level, because it's like, you don't want the people you care about to die. You don't want to die. You don't want to be sick. You don't want to be this. And, uh, you know, medicine is, you know, the, the, the greatest fuel for overpopulation. And I saw this argument online a little while back, and it was like, everyone talks about overpopulation, but it's not really a big deal because we have enough food. We have enough food to feed everybody. We waste so much food, which is true. We waste so much food. It's like Once I became aware of that, I was just taken aback. As a kid, I didn't think anything of it because I was eating food that didn't even look like food. It's like, who cares if like a half-eaten chicken tender gets thrown out? It's like, that doesn't even look like anything. Uh, but as I've gotten older, I've really realized, really, really realized, you know, how much food gets wasted and that kind of thing. So it's a valid argument that, yeah, we have enough food to feed the starving people out there, the current, you know, amount of starving people. I mean, I, but who am I to know? I mean, I can't. I'm taking someone else's word for it, too. Like, we have enough food. I went down to the, the global storehouse and I counted all the grains and we had enough, you know. But I, I believe it's likely based on how much food is wasted, how much we overeat. I think it's probable that we could feed people. But that's not the argument for me when it comes to overpopulation. Overpopulation isn't an issue of starvation. I mean, that's an issue that could come from it if we're just looking at the human suffering aspect. Just looking at the that petty little trivial human suffering. No, but really, uh, if you look at the bigger issue of overpopulation, it's, you know, consuming other resources. It's people driving cars. It's uh, not people driving... Pe- not people drive. It's people driving cars. I don't know. That's that sounded like something else. I don't know where I'm going with that. Um, but uh, it's it's this idea that like you know that people doing all of these things. It's their activities uh, that could potentially be contributing to something going on, something large and scary and looming and rapidly approaching. And it is strange, I've mentioned it before, though, how these apocalyptic theories come up. And I'm not, in in calling something like climate change an apocalyptic theory, that's not a dismissal. Because we have this idea that apocalyptic theories are all mythological, theological, religious, this or that. And it's because that's generally how we hear about them. (laughs) You hear about those Christians, you think like the world's going to end in like a blanket of fire. (laughs) Fucking idiots. You know, it's like, and meanwhile, it's like, the rainforest is burning. We're all going to die. And it's like, take a step back and like, the al- just think about what the aliens are seeing. That's, I think the best, when I taste, when I say, when I say, when I say, when I say, take a step back, basically what I mean is imagine what the aliens are seeing. You know, imagine what an alien is seeing when you express something that you think is totally different from the other side of the fence. The guys over there, huh? They they think the world's gonna end in a in a scathing holocaust of fire, and meanwhile it's like the heat, the icebergs are melting. We're all gonna burn. You know, it's like you're saying the same thing. It's just that what led you there is, uh, you know maybe a little bit different. I don't know. It's once again the Alan Watts thing of rearranging the universe and you know ultimately ending up with something that's the same as what we already have, I feel like, where you know, the farther we try to stray from these institutional ideas or these, you know, uh, these ancient, you know, religious uh, 
text. It's like the farther we try to stray from that, the more we end up recreating those in our own way with evidence, you know, and with evidence. I'm not saying there isn't evidence. Of course there is. That's, that's why I'm scared. If there wasn't evidence, I would be having a ball right now. You know, I would be having an absolute ball every second. I'd be, uh, they call me the ball guy because I just have a ball everywhere. <laughs> having a ball. Now, you think about that phrase, you know, having a ball, it obviously relates to like a ballroom, you know, like having a ball, like a party, a, you know, an old time ball. I like the idea, though, of just having a ball in your hand. He's got a football. He, he has a ball. He's happy. He's like a dog. He has his ball. <laughs> Uh, but no, it's it's the thing, though, where there's this dilemma where it's like, yeah, on one hand, you know, medicine, yeah, you know, you want your loved ones to survive if they're sick and all of that, and it's cruel, and, and you know, I would feel like some, like I would be an idiot to say, like, oh, we got to get rid of hospitals, but really, we have to look at how all of these things that we think are so creative and positive and how they could be leading toward some of the issues that we're having, where it's like, well, you're offsetting the natural balance, you know, immediately by even just setting up a hospital, you are changing your habitat in an immeasurable way by keeping people alive uh, in circumstances that they might not otherwise survive. And this isn't some like, you know, we just need to let nature take over. Might is right. I don't feel that way at all. And that's where the dilemma and that's where the conflict comes from is that I've, I, you know, obviously use a lot of technology. I obviously... Uh, you know, even if you're using your parents' old record player and you're uh, riding your bike, you're using technology. Like I said in the other episode, uh, you know, Timothy Leary's idea of, you know, glasses make you a cyborg, a cane makes you a cyborg. And my own addition to his work, my own addition to that idea is wearing a condom makes you a cyborg. Uh, so, you know, technology, we all use it in any number of ways, uh, not just the current the current iPhone, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. We're all using some, you know, uh, form of technology. I'm holding a coffee cup right now, a container, a container with a handle on it. It contains things so I can, uh, so I don't have to like kneel down to the ground and drink out of a puddle. You know, I, I can drink out of a cup. You know, I got I, I have respect for that. I have respect for the science behind that, the science of pottery with a Seahawks football logo stamped into it. I have respect for that. But yeah, that dilemma is really at the heart of it all. And in the same way that I experienced that dilemma on a personal level where I'm like, well, would I be better off if I just dropped all this shit that I think is important? Would I be better off if I stopped trying to like throw, if I stopped trying to like pitch my little penny out into the world, whatever that means. Uh, when I think about pitching pennies, I heard about a game when I was a kid that kids used to play. I heard about a game when I was a kid that kids used to play before my time where they, it was called like pitching pennies and they would throw pennies at a wall or something. It sounded like craps. It's like a form of craps, but with pennies maybe. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, you know, just having this desire, I got to pitch my penny out into the world. Just got to pitch my penny. And, you know, I, 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 I struggle with that dilemma, you know, it's on a personal level where I'm just like, am I better off as a person on an individual level? Is the world better off if I don't express everything I need to express or create everything I need to express? Even if it's something that's like not 
public, you know, even if it's private, just something that I've done for myself, it's like I sometimes question, like, is that the best use, not just the best use of my time, but is, does that have a benefit or is it somehow, I don't know, is, is the desire to do that as much as it seems productive, is it somehow taking away from me in some way or should I, it, it, would the time be better spent on something else? I don't know. But that's how I feel about a lot of technological advancement and just our desire to continue to manipulate and meddle with the world. And that's why there is this level of contradiction or hypocrisy in our attitude towards science and scientists, because it's just, you know, we see them as these just benevolent workers who just like, they're just there for, they're just interested in things and they're really smart. And so they, they create interesting things with their interesting observations and they help people. And then they, let go of any responsibility the second that someone does something bad with it. You know, sure, and I, I'm speaking, you know, in very broad strokes here, and we've heard about Einstein and other scientists, the only scientist I know, <laughs> Einstein, uh, the only one I've ever ever heard of. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, we hear about the guilt they feel, so it's like I'm not saying that scientists just wash their hands of everything they do, but they don't seem to... They don't, they don't seem to break the spell, you know, they, we might hear about like, oh, you know, this scientist, he, you know, he never got over the fact that they used his, uh, his theory to develop atomic weaponry and kill like millions of people, you know, he never got over that. Well, I, you know, I wouldn't either. <laughs> uh, so we do have this scientific guilt that comes up and uh, when something is, is used, you know, for some purpose that wasn't intended. But you also have to figure these guys are, you know, if they're so smart, wouldn't they have known that? Wouldn't they have known that these governments that fund them, that will at some point absorb their work and use it for their own purposes? Uh, and we know what those are. You know, you look at like the 19th and 20th centuries and you see the, the this rise of authoritarianism in Russia, Germany, under different banners too, but... You saw this rise of authoritarianism in Asia, you know, uh, in the 20th century in certain countries, at least, you know, China, North Korea. Uh, and you just see how that develops. And it's like that was going on alongside all of this scientific advancement. So, you know, nobody had blinders on, you know, nobody had blinders on as this stuff was being introduced to the world. It's like we saw that human impulses could be just as rotten at the highest level you know, during this period. So it's not like something just happened the next day. It's not like, uh, you know, oh, we created this amazing thing, and then the next day we didn't expect this guy to show up and take it and use it to hurt people. You know, all this stuff was going on, you know, as, as you know, this technology, as these developments were happening. Uh, I feel like I'm just repeating the same words. Technology, developments, advancement. Um. But it is the true dilemma to me of the human experience is just this this need to meddle because so much of this comes from a place of survival, this need to meddle in things and manipulate things. And, you know, if you look at what humans do, we manipulate nature to help to aid with our survival. But that becomes so complicated. It became so complicated that it's basically an abstraction of whatever the original impulse was. And... Uh, that's what I'm trying to get back to. Like, what is the original impulse? Is it survival? 
because I know my own desire to create and touch. And I mean, I think you can even see it in the simplest ways. Like the amount of graffiti around here is just unreal. And it's not good. It's not like artistic. It's not like, you know, when like, it used to be a little more controversial, like maybe it still is, but like there used to be like the controversy of graffiti and then like people who like were into hip hop would be like, it's just the hip hop art form. It's the hip hop art form. It's urban culture. It's the hip hop art form, you know, and but really like most of the graffiti around here is just, you know, like street kids who just write like their name in like regular letters on everything. There's no, there's no like artistic value. It's just literally putting your tag name on everything, but not even in a creative way. Because uh, it was interesting. I was listening to a podcast. I can't even remember what it was, but they were talking about graffiti art and specifically the way that graffiti art took names. Like you'd write your name, but you'd basically try to abstract it to the point where it was barely readable yet you still knew what it said. You could still, if you were, especially if you were involved in like hip hop or graffiti, you could still decipher what it said because you get used to kind of the way that people form their letters. But the idea is basically to make a word as unrecognizable as possible while still kind of retaining the word and making it readable in doing that. Uh, and it's interesting, and I thought about, you know, metal logos and all of that, and like, as I said, I'm I'm very self-conscious about talking about metal on here. Uh, it's just not something I feel like needs to be a part of this show, but it immediately made me think of metal logos, and the big joke is like, oh, death metal, black metal logos are indecipherable. You can't even read what it says. You know, it's this, and it's just interesting, and I hate to draw a parallel between like hip-hop and metal, you know. We're all alike. Who knew? We're all alike. Um, it's true, though. But it's interesting how in both of these subcultures, these uh, this desire to express your your logo, because, I mean, that's what a graffiti name is. That's what a tag name is, especially one that's done, you know, well. It's your logo. You have a style. You have a way of presenting it. It's your own personal logo. And uh, it's interesting how with that, with the these hip-hop logos, essentially, and then metal logos. There's a desire to make them as almost as indecipherable as possible, but still have people know what they are, still have them be recognizable. And that's fascinating to me that you see that in different places. And it's not just in those genres. Those aren't the only times that human beings basically try to create something that is almost as indecipherable as possible, almost indecipherable, but just there's something to it. It's like you keep just these core components that remind you, yes, it says something and you can potentially read it if you look at it or if you look at enough of these logos, if you look at enough graffiti. And when I see something like that, I'm like, okay, there's something in this that goes beyond just, this is more than just like subculture and and like niche interests and art. This is coming from some place, specific, a specifically male place, I think, because, uh, you know, males are, are the ones who have a desire to put their name on things more often, I believe. You know, it's not a coincidence that most graffiti artists are male, most metal musicians with those kinds of logos are male. Uh, it's not conditioned, but there's a, de- a desire to express yourself in almost, indeci- to almost like m- make your, I don't know, to have some sort of symbol... You know, because that's what a word is. A word's a, you know, a symbol, right? Uh, 
But there's this desire to have a symbol, essentially, that is almost unreadable, but yet it's not. And there's something to that, and it somehow shows that you belong to something, for one. You belong to some sort of subculture or style of, of expressing yourself, style of art, style of music. But that tells me it comes from someplace much deeper, and it makes me think of secret societies. That's what I thought of immediately when I when I heard this podcast where they were where they didn't talk about metal logos, but they were talking about graffiti logos and how they're almost indecipherable yet not, and that abstracting it all as far as you can go, really. And it made me think of secret societies and how that's also a largely male phenomenon where. You know, we like to get into little groups, whether it's on the playground, you know, that happened on the playground. I remember little like secret gangs, like attempts at it, you know, obviously nothing came of it, but not just my group of friends either. Kids would would create secret clubhouses. You see it in uh, our gang, you know, you see it in Little Rascals, uh, It's which is the same thing, right? Uh, our gang and Little Rascals. In every, like, 1950s boy story, it's like they start out at a, a secret clubhouse. You have to know the password. I told that story the other day about going to the fort in, in my friend my childhood friend's neighborhood and my friend saying, what's the password to a kid? And there wasn't even a password. Like, he just made that up. But it's like there's something in us that wants to do that. And I feel like that making, like, some sort of logo or, you know, expression that's almost indecipherable is almost that same thing. Because the funny thing about secret societies is... Nobody wants to be in a secret society that nobody knows about. <laughs> it's like when you're in a secret society, it's like you want people to have just the, like a whiff of it. You want people to kind of know it's there. Uh, and But you don't want everybody to join. You don't want everybody to have access to it. You want it to be exclusive. You want it to be elite. And it plays out in the mob. You see where the mob, you know, despite taking this oath of secrecy, and you know, swearing to never acknowledge it. It's like they, they walk around the city just with it on their sleeve. They want everybody to know. They don't want everybody to join, but they want everybody to know it exists. And that's kind of like the graffiti thing. But yeah, going the reason I, I started talking about that was just the way that, especially, it's probably in every city now, uh, but I saw some old footage of this town, of Olympia, from, the I believe, the early 90s. It was old video footage of some areas around town, and somebody had put it online. And I was amazed that there was no graffiti on anything. And, you know, I'm not trying to, like, make... I don't know what I'm trying to say by even bringing it up, but... Uh, now everything's covered, and just that desire to put your mark on something. I think that's what I struggle with. That's my dilemma, my own personal creative dilemma, my own life dilemma. It's not just creativity. It's also like sometimes I'll be at something. I'll be watching like a guest speaker. I, I did a, that guided tour of the Capitol on the 4th of July, and I had to make some little quip. you know. And I don't normally do that. I'm not the person who like raises his hand and says shit at a presentation or on a guided tour, but I decided to make this little quip at the end of uh, something that the tour guide said, and it just kind of fell flat, you know? They don't get me. These other tourists, these tourists don't get me. The tour guide doesn't get me. <laughs> uh, but I, I had to make some little quip that I came up with based on something he said, and I regretted it. I was like, why did I have to do that? Why did I have to offset the balance? Like, people aren't here to hear my quip. I'm not here to hear my quip. I'm not here to make a quip. I'm just walking around an old building, you know? It's just that kind of idea. And sometimes I do feel that way where I'm like, I might as well be someone who's just spray painting my tag name on everything. 
I'm just writing my name on everything. And it, that's kind of the most basic boil down of what I'm talking about, that desire to just write your name on everything. Like there's a guy, a graffiti guy, and he's successful because I know who he is, but he has the graffiti name Kov, like K-O-V, and it makes me think of Russia. I don't know why, I guess Kia, I don't know. Uh, but uh, he, I, he writes it in like some sort of whiteout pen, it's just it's just the name Cobb, and there's like very little artistic about it. It's just the name Cobb, and it's everywhere. I'll go into some weird like, uh, you know, what's it called? Like a rest stop bathroom, and it's there on the paper towel machine. I'll see his name. Maybe he's multiple people. I don't know. I'll go to some weird. I'll I'll go under some bridge on a trail way outside of town, and there I see Cobb. Maybe I'm Cobb. Maybe this is some stupid like Fight Club or uh, usual suspects, like Kaiser Soze thing. I don't know. Maybe I'm secretly Cobb, and I just don't know it. His graffiti is every single place I go. <laughs> it seriously is. like, And it's not even a weird thing. It's not even, I'm like, whoa, at this point, I just accept it. I've seen it on trees. I'm not even kidding. I'll see it on, like, a tree. And that's another example, too. There's a park here, and... A very, it's a very public park. It's not like a, a deep in the woods kind of park. It's a, it's you know where a waterfall is. It's a cool place. But I walked by a tree, and like every surface of the tree that a human can reach has had initials carved in it. You know, like C plus D equals love. It's all couples. It's like the couple tree, and it's so fucked. It's like we're gonna carve our name into these this tree. And everybody, you know, it's if you see that on one tree, it's just kind of like, oh well, they carved their name into a tree. But it's seriously, like, it was so horrific to see how many fucking people have carved into this living thing. And I'm not even being a super hippie about it. On an aesthetic level, it's ugly. All these letters carved into the tree. Uh, But on top of that, it's just like, why are you doing that to that tree? You know, is your love not going to last if you don't carve that into that tree? But it all just comes from that place. And it's like scientists are no different. We have this idea that they are coming from some, you know, much more you know, much, much more important, much more grand place because they're changing our world so drastically and helping us, you know, they're, you know, helping us survive. They're help. They're making things easier for us. They're giving us interesting things to think about and observe. And, you know, you could also, I mean, if I'm going to say like, oh, well, they made bombs because of what the scientists found. It's like, well, they made movies too. You know, it's like, you wouldn't be using a camera, if not for scientists, too. So it's like, you got to take it all. You got to take it all, the good and the bad, or especially the in-between. And that's really where the dilemma is, is just this desire to mess with things. That's what it all boils down to. Why do we have to mess with things? Why do I have to mess with things? Uh, Why do I sometimes feel good when I do it? And why do I sometimes feel bad? Why do I sometimes feel guilty? And, you know, I don't know... Uh, like scientists obviously feel guilty when their developments are used for terrible purposes, but do they feel a general sense of guilt normally? Like, do they feel just a sense of guilt in the laboratory for doing anything at all? Because I would. I would wonder what I'm doing and why and what impact it's having. So it reminds me of some sort of almost like a, a protection racket sometimes where... We're like, we got to listen to the scientists about this. The scientists are going to tell us how to fix everything or what we can do. Listen to the scientists. And it's like, well, if it is true that a lot of this climate change is man-made, then science is to blame, at least partially. At least partially. If we're going to point fingers, we have to point at science and technology. We can't not. 
And the sick part about that is we point at just the common man for using those things. The common, you know, we're, we're like, oh, you know, you're driving your car and eating your steak that was made available to you and you knew no different. So fuck you, you Republican. You know, that's kind of the attitude we take. And it's like, well, who gave who gave that person that opportunity? Who gave that person the opportunity to drive a car, to get to work, to make a living so he could buy steak? That he gets to eat first because he's daddy. Daddy works hard for the money, so daddy gets to take a bite of steak before the rest of the family. No, but uh, it's just that sort of thing where it's like, you know, we blame the common person for all of this stuff, and it's it's your fault. And I think that's the sick part about all this, that I hope no matter what happens, whether we are facing some sort of rapidly approaching apocalypse, I hope we can avoid pointing the finger at common people. It's your fault. You know, that we don't need that. And I'm not trying to do that to scientists either, because I know scientists didn't think like, oh, well, you know, if we keep people alive through medicine and and we uh, make this easier for people and we develop this, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're going to destroy the planet. Who cares? Who cares? You know, I don't, it's not like I think scientists thought that way, but I think there is a carelessness to it. I think there is a lack of perspective. And I want to see that addressed. I want to see that addressed. If we're going to be so hateful about this, if that's just unavoidable, it's just this, you know, this finger pointing, you know, angry game that we're playing. If we're going to do that, I think we do have to look at the root. And the root is human inquiry. It is the human need to carve our initials into a tree. It's all of that. And it's a, a difficult pill to swallow. It's a very difficult pill to swallow. And hopefully, if we do get as brutally honest as we can about all of this, we'll actually be able to find some level of acceptance. Because if we're going to get burned out, you know, if we're going to get just burned out in the scathing fires, whether you believe they're uh, coming from the fingertip of God or just some crazy, we're getting too close to the sun, which what's the difference, you know, (laughs) at that point, you know, does it really matter whether you think that... uh, the fires come from God's wrath or getting a little too close to the sun, this big, giant, burning thing we can't truly understand. Uh, but I read a book about it. I read a book about the sun. Um, but no, at that point, what does it matter? What does an alien think? What does an alien think about it? Uh, but I, I do feel... If, we, if we're heading in this direction and there's no going back and we're just going to have to deal with struggle. You know, all those movies we watched, you know, shouldn't they have prepared us for this? You know, we've been paying to go experience struggle for decades. You know, we've been like, what are you going to do this weekend? Oh, well, uh, I'm going to go pay some money at the, uh, the old uh, Cineplex to watch somebody struggle. <laughs> That's what it is. Stress. Oh, I'm going to go sit in a, an, an air-conditioned room in a chair and eat popcorn and get stressed out over someone who doesn't exist. Because that's what a movie is. You know, it's a stress thing. We go, we go, we watch movies for the struggle and the stress. We don't play video games that are just like fantasy worlds. Uh, we do. No, I mean, we <laughs> we do play video games that are fantasy worlds. But we don't play video games that are like utopian. That gets boring really quick. Even these civilization games. Sid Meier's Civilization. Sid Meier. I went on a Sid Meier Google thing the other, not the other day. The other day. It was the other day, but it was like months ago. 
the other day, months ago, just to figure out who he was. I was like, why is this guy's name on all these old games? Sid Meier's Civilization. I never played Civilization. I played Age of Empires. That was a struggle. It's just build your civilization, then go to war. Build your civilization, then go to war. Uh, Sid Meier, Sid Meier's God. That's sort of like what the effect is. I mean, when you have like a game that's like Sid Meier's Civilization, he's like the de- game developer or something. It's like he's basically God in that case. Those people in that video game, they're debating whether you know Sid Meier's destroying them. You know, are we go into war because is our civilization falling apart because Sid Meier did something? Uh, but uh. Yeah, no, I hope in the end, though, it's like we're able to... Well, yeah, just what I was saying there. Uh, you know, we've we've been paying for struggle for so long. You know, when struggle doesn't exist, we pay for it. Uh, and I don't mean that as some, like, double entendre. It's my son. This is my son, entendre. Entendre. Um, and my daughter, entendre. Uh, they're twins, so they're a double. Uh Turn this. Turn it off. Turn it off. But yeah, struggle. It's something when we don't have it immediately in our lives, or even if we do, we find ways to indulge in it. We'll pay for it. We'll pay to watch a fake person go through all kinds of trials and tribula- tribu- tribulations, tribulations, uh, because you know it's how we entertain ourselves, and it, it gives. I don't know. It, it, we see it as a good use of time. That's basically what it comes down to. It's a good use of time. Let's watch somebody struggle. Let's watch somebody get really stressed out by some overwhelming situation and then see how they resolve it. If they do. Uh, you know, not all movies have a good ending. Uh, but it is something we do as a form of entertainment. Let's listen to this struggle. Let's listen to this story of struggle. And then when we're faced with struggle... It's overwhelming, you know, in our own lives, but it does give us something. It does give us something to do. It gives something. It gives us something to focus on. As long as we don't become, you know, as long as we don't completely fall apart. And that's my only goal in the face of all this stuff. I don't know what the exact timeline is as far as some sort of potential, you know, apocalypse. I mean, I think the apocalypse is always going to be a gradual process rather than something that just snaps into place one day, where it's like, oh, the apocalypse is here today. Hey, what are you doing on Friday? Oh, well, the apocalypse is coming. That's The apocalypse is supposed to arrive. All oh, these weathermen, they never know what they... They never know the exact day. These weathermen are always wrong, you know. Uh, they're always wrong about the apocalypse. They are, though. That's another thing we have to keep in mind, is that people who try to quantify and schedule these apocalypses into our into our lives you know <laughs> they're trying to be like well the apocalypse is going to be coming in you know five to ten years they're often wrong you know and that's one of the reasons why we mock theology why we mock cults you know it's like we're like oh well they, they were wrong oh they thought that the world was going to end in 2012 they were wrong you know it's that sort of idea oh they thought the world was going to end uh at the last stroke at the stroke of midnight on the year 2000, January 1st, uh, they were wrong. So we, part of our, you know, ongoing human thing is that we like to think about apocalypses and then we like to denounce them and talk about how people were wrong for thinking they were coming about. And that's what's going on now. You know, it's like on one hand you have these, you know, scientific-minded 
people who are like, oh, you know, uh, th- these Christians and their apocalypse, they're Christ- these Christians and this rapture, it's all bullshit, all, all these, the fires of God, you know, scorching the earth, it's all bullshit. Meanwhile, they're like, have you heard about the fires, you know, that are going to get coming and scorching the earth? Have you heard about the sun burning us out? Have you heard about the rainforest burning down in some catastrophic event we can't control? That's going to affect our entire planet. And on the other side of that, too, it's you have Christians and people who are like, well, the apocalypse is coming in my lifetime. You know, it's coming in my lifetime. I think the world's going to end in my lifetime. Meanwhile, they're like, global warming doesn't exist. That's not what I was talking about. The world's going to end, but it's not going to be that. It's not going to be what the liberals are saying. You know, it's like that sort of thing where... We're both fixated on the same ideas, and if all of this is inevitable, I think the only approach is to look at it as you know a challenge, <laughs> look at it as a potential struggle to work through, and who knows what can come from that. If we look at it that way, if we look at it as you know a movie we didn't pay for, that's all it is. Oh, you're talking about climate change? You're talking about the apocalypse? It's just a movie we didn't pay for. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave This golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children 